Welcome to A History of Violence, a podcast about violence throughout time. Today is kind of a heavy episode, as I'm going to be discussing totalitarianism and totalitarian violence. I'll be talking more about the philosophical perspectives on this as opposed to the gory details, but it's still pretty dark. I'm also going to be drawing some historical parallels to the modern treatment of asylum seekers and migrants in many countries. Maybe it's ill-advised for me to bring modern politics into a historical discussion, but I think there's little point in learning about history if we can't apply it to our own society. So first off, what does totalitarianism mean? It's a word which is often used against someone's political opponents, but its precise meaning isn't clear. Everyone today would see it as a negative description, related to some form of real-world authoritarian government or a fictional dystopia. But what differentiates totalitarianism from dictatorship, tyranny or autocracy? It's easy to throw out some real-life examples, like Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, but does it also apply to Maoist China, Fascist Japan or Franco's Spain? Another issue is that totalitarianism usually refers to a form of government or a society, rather than a type of violence. However, there is an argument that certain forms of social violence are totalitarian in nature, regardless of the society and the government carrying them out. That is, I think it's closely related to the idea of dehumanisation as a social process. So today I will talk about dehumanisation and totalitarian forms of violence in history, as well as the parallels. So totalitarianism is tricky to define, but let's have a go. It can be defined as the complete domination of the state over the life of its citizens. To quote an actual fascist leader, Benito Mussolini, everything within the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. To quote the historian Richard Pipes, the officially proclaimed ideology penetrates into the deepest reaches of societal structure and the totalitarian government seeks to completely control the thoughts and actions of its citizens. The difference, therefore, between totalitarianism and run-of-the-mill authoritarianism is that it attempts to control and change individuals, not just society. Most authoritarian governments don't really care what you think or feel as long as you pay your taxes and don't cause trouble. Totalitarians require a much deeper level of control than this. Totalitarian governments of the past have used a range of ideologies, including left-wing, right-wing and religious. It's not the ideology that makes the regime totalitarian, it's the extent of social control and the methods used to get there. This typically involves the use of extreme propaganda and leader worship to develop a level of control which goes beyond simply running a highly centralised government. So we can see this occur with nominally left-wing governments such as the Soviet Union under Stalin, or with fascist governments as in Nazi Germany, and with Islamist governments uh, as in Afghanistan. However, we probably gain more of our general understanding of totalitarianism from fiction than from history, often from the fiction of people who did live under these regimes. The overwhelming feature of totalitarian societies depicted in Orwell's 1984 or Zamatayan's We is not a particular political ideology, but is instead the complete loss of individuality. It's not enough for the state within these novels to gain control over people's behaviour. It must then use this to control and degrade and destroy individuality itself. In many dystopian movies or books, 
people are portrayed as robotic, dressing and speaking identically. For example, in the novel We, people are referred to by their numbers rather than their names. This symbolic destruction of individuality then allows the state to commit the sort of mass violence that we usually associate with totalitarianism. By destroying the individuality of certain groups, in particular, it is easier to put them into a subhuman category, eventually justifying death camps and other mass atrocities. The reason this is so important here is because of the connection between rights and human individuality. Rights are generally a thing which individuals have. If the state wants to remove rights, then first it must remove individuality. This loss of individuality is pushed to its extreme in fiction, but it does chime with what happened in real life. The same themes pushed to their metaphorical extremes in dystopian fiction are present in the writings of Holocaust survivors and other survivors of totalitarian societies. The most prominent example of this is probably the practice of tattooing numbers on prisoners at the Auschwitz concentration camp. This was a physical symbol of dehumanisation, as people were robbed of their name and therefore their individuality. However, this use of numbers is not a practice which was limited to the Holocaust. Inmates in modern prisons are given a number, and often referred to by it. We also see this practice referenced in literature which predates the Holocaust. For example, Jean Valjean is referred to by his prisoner number in Hugo's Le Miserable, which was published in 1862, and as I mentioned, the trope of numbering peoples is present in both We and 1984. Another example described by Holocaust survivor Primo Levi is that of the Missile Manor in concentration camps. I'm not sure exactly where this term comes from, it's a German term for Muslim, um, there's a fair amount of debate about the origins. But anyway, Levy described camp inmates who were so beaten down and exhausted that they accept death gladly. I will read a quote from him here. Their life is short, but their number is endless. They, the Muslimaner, the drowned, form the backbone of the camp, an anonymous mass, continually renewed and always identical, of non-men who march and labour in silence. The divine spark dead within them, already too empty to really suffer. One hesitates to call them living, one hesitates to call their death death, in the face of which they have no fear, as they are too tired to understand. During their waking hours, they simply shuffle around like what Hannah Arndt described as living corpses, appearing to feel no emotion or human connection. They are physically alive but emotionally dead. In this sense, they are no longer fully individual or fully human. It is this which represents the logical endpoint of totalitarianism and which typifies totalitarian violence as distinct from other forms of state-sanctioned terror. At its most extreme, it grinds down people's individuality to the extent that they are utterly annihilated as human beings. It is not only that the state can control people, but that it can use that control to completely destroy the sense of self. So, total control goes hand in hand with the destruction of individuality and individual rights to create the conditions which allow for state violence on an unprecedented scale. According to Herbert Kelman, this destruction of individual identity also goes along with the destruction of the perception that a victim is a member of a community. We can see this historically in how once distinct groups become homogenised members of a victim class under totalitarian regimes. For example, despite the Nazi obsession with precise racial categorization, they increasingly lumped together Slavs, Jews, Roma and Russian as all part of the same category of Uttermensch. 
Similarly, in communist regimes, various different and often competing political groups are, have been lumped together as class enemies or revisionists. Once they've been categorised this way, they are denied both their individuality, but also their own community. Not only are they not one of us, the mainstream, they are not really one of anything. They are reduced to a faceless member of some amorphous mass. This sets the stage for mass remorseless violence. The victims are no longer a loss as individuals because they are not meaningful individuals with meaningful rights. They are also no longer a loss as part of their community because they do not belong to one. As Kelman says, It is difficult to have compassion for those who lack identity and who are excluded from our community. Their death does not move us in a personal way. So it's this precise form of violence, controlled and targeted at dehumanised, homogenised non-individuals, which is uniquely totalitarian. It is distinct from the random violence of a despot or the instrumental violence of an autocrat. An autocrat will kill their political opponents. A totalitarian system will instead rob them of their individual humanity, completely removing their rights and their personhood. After this is done, the people might be deliberately killed, as was the case in Auschwitz. They might instead be used for forced labour, many dying due to poor conditions and neglect. At this stage, the precise form of violence is less important than the dehumanisation process which has occurred. This understanding of totalitarian violence as being inherently connected to the destruction of individuality formed the basis of Hannah Arndt's understanding of both totalitarianism and human rights. She pinpoints the unique evil of totalitarianism as being, and I quote, a system in which all men have become equally superfluous. Again, the idea is that dehumanising people by destroying their individuality renders them useless, justifying any subsequent violence or neglect. Perhaps the most pressing observation with Arndt made was that the logic of totalitarianism could survive after the totalitarian system has fallen. She repeatedly refers to totalitarian instruments or totalitarian solutions, rejecting the idea that these processes could not be adapted to serve the needs of other non-totalitarian states and governments. Again, I will quote her directly. Totalitarian solutions may well survive the fall of totalitarian regimes in the form of strong temptations which will come up whenever it seems impossible to alleviate political, social and economic misery in a manner worthy of man. So, I want to turn now to this idea that totalitarian instruments can survive the fall of the totalitarian regimes of the mid-20th century. We often think of totalitarian violence with the systems of control and the dehumanising language as only happening in totalitarian states. Most of these states were gone, with the exception of North Korea and perhaps Eritrea. However, this isn't the case. This uniquely totalitarian form of violence can exist within relatively open societies, and even perhaps within democracies. Modern societies which are not themselves totalitarian, but which have absorbed some of the strategies of control. I think a good way of looking at this is through Arndt's own writing on refugees and on the modern so-called migrant crisis. Arndt was not only a Holocaust escapee and philosopher of the Holocaust, she was also herself a stateless refugee, and her understanding of totalitarianism was connected to her writings on stateless peoples. To Arndt, it wasn't enough to declare abstractly that humans all have inalienable rights. They also had to be members of some political community which guarantees those rights. 
for most of us, that is our state in the constitutional order that we live under. I have rights as a British and European Union citizen, and you might have rights under some other constitution. Philosophically, people all have human rights, but legally and practically, those rights are protected by and derived from the state or some other authority. But stateless refugees do not have even that. There are various conventions and agreements providing them some basic protections, theoretically underwritten by the United Nations. But in practice, there's no one enforcing this in most cases. The issue of stateless refugees came to prominence during World War II, but continues to flare up today. While the UN and various governments have attempted to put systems in place, in many ways the situation for these people is just as capricious as in the 1930s and 40s. Stateless Jews and other refugees from Europe escaped the Holocaust, but in a sense, they suffered a different version of the same dehumanisation and de-individualisation process as those who stayed. They lost their state and their identity as Germans or Poles or Czechs or whatever, and instead became a homogenous member of the refugee class. They were thus robbed of their identity and in effect their legal rights. Organisations helped to forge a new identity and community for many, and provided valuable support. But not all refugees were able to access or benefit from this. While many refugees found or created new communities, and while many were treated with kindness in their host countries, in many parts of the world they were viewed with contempt. You only have to look at the dehumanising language in newspapers of the time to see that those refugees escaping fascist regimes in Europe did not automatically escape the dehumanisation process. The British Daily Mail initially welcomed a transport of Basque children fleeing the Spanish Civil War, stating that they were as blonde as any English children with bright blue eyes and lightly freckled skins. However, public opinion quickly turned against them after some public disturbances involving the unruly, unaccompanied children. There were more worries about the Jewish children coming to Britain, with fears about disease and economic burdens, and talk about how Jews might overrun the country. The emphasis was instead put on helping Christian children, with efforts made instead to divert Jewish refugees to Palestine, with all the long-term issues that that caused. In the United States, polls showed the majority of people were against admitting Jewish-German refugees, even after the Kristallnacht. If this scepticism towards child refugees sounds familiar, it should. It mirrors precisely the arguments made against admitting what British Prime Minister David Cameron called a swarm of Syrian refugees in 2016, complete with the preference for Christian over Muslim incomers. Deprived of their rights to a safe life, these people are forced to rely on the selective, politically malleable whims of foreign governments and publics. Despite the apparent universality of human rights, those seeking to escape violence are left to rely on charity while being subjected to distrust and hostility. But why this digression into discussing the parallel issue of refugees? I think it allows for a strong historical comparison as the way migrants are currently being treated in the US and Europe shows precisely the continuing adaptation and use of totalitarian instruments which aren't warned us about. I want to avoid Goodman's Law here. I'm not saying that Italy or the US or the UK are like the Nazis in how they treat refugees. I'm saying that the particularly totalitarian process of dehumanisation through de-individualisation 
is present in how they treat many economic and political migrants and asylum seekers. While it's not yet led to widespread state violence against these groups, the logic and process show clear similarities. The current discourse around illegal immigration and migrant detention camps in the United States has focused in part on whether these camps can truly be compared to concentration camps. The fact that we're even having this discussion, I think, shows how inhumane the situation has gotten. I'm going to avoid the semantic issue over what exactly constitutes a concentration camp. Instead, we can look at whether the overall process bears any resemblance to the totalitarian instruments which aren't described. Firstly, migrants and refugees have increasingly been portrayed as, in Arndt's words, superfluous. Although there's a good base of evidence showing that migration in general is a net benefit to the economy, many political actors take pains to portray certain classes of migrants, for example refugees or people from Trump's shithole countries, as being parasites, a burden on the taxpayer and on our social institutions. In some cases, the system is actually designed to make this true. The UK asylum system forbids asylum seekers from working, even though their case can take several years to move completely through the system. Deprived of the right to work, they are often forced to rely on charity, begging, or to work illegally. The system is actually designed to take people who could work and make them superfluous, with this worklessness then being turned against them by sections of the press. This does not necessarily justify violence and repression against them, but it does start the process of them being cut off and alienated from the rest of society. Secondly, the individuality of different groups and peoples is negated both passively and actively within the political discourse and the judicial system. Scholars studying modern refugees have described a lifelessness and loss of individuality similar to Levy's description of the missile manor. Elizabeth Cullen Dunn describes how long-term displaced persons lose their individual histories, leaving them to become viewed as universal, helpless victims at best and as a burden at worst. Lisa Malaki argues that refugees stop being specific persons and become pure victims in general, universal man, universal woman, universal child, and taken together, universal family. Dunn further argues that they are often seen not even as humans, but as a mass, an incoming threat of natural disaster proportions. This dehumanisation is partly a passive feature of the system which throws vulnerable individuals together into hastily constructed camps. However, it's also deliberately stroked by some political actors and sections of the media. Look at the way the word illegals is used in the US. At its most basic level, this means economic migrants who cross the border illegally. It has now expanded to include asylum seekers who were never legally required to apply for a visa from their own country for reasons which should be obvious. The logic of coming down hard on illegals now appears to have been extended to children who are separated from their parents and subjected to poor conditions in order to act as a deterrent. Young children who were brought by parents fleeing war are not the same as adults who choose to migrate illegally for economic opportunity, but they are increasingly lumped together. So a Guatemalan woman fleeing gang violence, a Syrian family fleeing civil war, or a Mexican man fleeing poverty are all dismissively put together and cast as illegals. I'm not sure if a British or Norwegian overstaying their visa would be counted as an illegal, despite the fact that this would also be an illegal form of migration, but there you go. 
Once they are all lumped in together, it becomes easy to associate these diverse individuals with only the worst possible traits and characteristics. When Donald Trump talks about illegals, the image which comes into the minds of his supporters is not young, vulnerable children or even optimistic economic migrants in search of a better life. It is MS-13 members, rapists and drug dealers. Trump has said about some unauthorised migrants, these aren't people, these are animals. Similar language was one used by one newspaper columnist in the UK who described migrants as cockroaches. This is a point in the process where force and cruelty becomes necessary, justified, even virtuous. After all, what do you do with cockroaches and other types of vermin? You just exterminate them. Looking at reported conditions in many of the migrant detention camps along the US-Mexico border shows how far this process has gone. Cramped conditions, insufficient food and rampant physical and sexual abuse have been reported, as well as a number of deaths in custody. However, it seems like there is an effort to go beyond the cruelty and neglect which typifies incarceration in many countries. Families are deliberately separated, with the destruction of the family unit helping to degrade individual identity. There are reports of young siblings being banned from hugging or touching each other to provide comfort. Many agents seem determined not just to confide migrants, but to degrade and humiliate them. The issue is not resources, as it would be cheaper to house all of these families in motels than it would be to keep the detention centres open. These conditions are therefore purposeful and deliberate. In the US government's own words, the purpose is for these centres to act as a deterrent. That the goal is deterrence rather than elimination may well be true. These camps fall far short of the death camps or Soviet gulags in scale and cruelty. But, I would argue, they share the same use of totalitarian instruments of violence. While the US is not a totalitarian regime, it has used the rhetoric and tools of totalitarianism to create a system of institutionalised violence directed against a dehumanised social group. The US is not alone in this, with similar processes being used around the world. If there's a lesson from this, then I think it's this. Totalitarianism isn't confined to dystopian fiction, the distant past, or faraway regimes like North Korea. Modern states, even democratic ones, have adapted the strategies of these totalitarian governments and now use them in our own societies, often just under the surface. Um, thanks for listening. I'll try and make sure the next episode is something a little bit lighter. Um, thanks, and please, if you're enjoying the podcast, give us a review uh, and subscribe. A review is the best way to help us reach more people. Thank you. Mm-hmm.